Over the past few weeks, we've been teaching through the songs of uh, the songs of Christmas. Pastor Tate has had the responsibility to bring to us the first two songs, Mary's song and Zechariah's song. Two refrains that I'm sure uh, some of you know, uh, but often overlooked as we settle into seasons like Christmas. But now I have the privilege to bring to your attention this morning likely one of the most read passages in the Bible besides Genesis 1 and John 3.16, of course. But the text in Luke 2 from verses 1 through 20 represents a song which resounds in our minds as the declaration and arrival of a long-awaited Savior. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. My family has the honor of reading this uh, section of Scripture every Christmas. Um, well, usually on Christmas Eve, actually, previous to um, Jess's grandfather's passing, uh, he would read it. Every Christmas Eve, we would gather together and read these precious words. But not often would we read Christmas, uh, we'd read chapter 1 of, of, of Luke, where Zechariah's song and Mary's song are found. Not often would we continue on after verse 20 accounting for Jesus' presentation at the temple where Simeon's song is found. But the difficulty with a text like this is that it may be difficult to give assent to the knowledge and the joy that we've already extracted from a text like this rather than listening to it anew. The season of Christmas is full of wonderful childlike wonder drawn from years of tradition and nostalgia. Spending time together, giving gifts as an expression of joy as it has come to bear today. However, it must be our prayer this morning as we read this text that God would root us and that He would ground us in an unshakable way amidst this season of these long-established traditions. And not that those things are wrong. It's not bad to set up a Christmas tree. It's not bad to give gifts. But like all humans, all human traditions, these things can change according to our circumstance or our feelings or our preferences. What's different is that our God does not change. And this story in Luke 2 brings us hope. Not just today, not just yesterday, but also for tomorrow. Therefore, let us attune our ears to the work of the Spirit this morning as we open His Word together, as we read it together, that He would give us something anew this day. Let's pray and ask God for that specifically before we get into the text. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray, Lord God, that it will be handled diligently this morning, not just from my mouth, but also in the minds of the hearers. Whether here in person or online, I pray, Lord God, that the words that are read and spoken from your word will take root deeply, that they would offer a hope renewed, that we would not look or assent to our own knowledge or understanding, but instead, Lord, we would ask you again to grant us a peace that surpasses understanding. And so, Lord, that is what we seek. That is what we pray for. We ask for your wisdom this morning as we read in your name. Amen. And so this morning, in our time together, I want to bring a specific attention to two things primarily. 
in this song. It's a very short song. It's, a, it's just one line, uh, so it's easy to memorize. If you, if you want to memorize a song, this is the one. But the first thing in Luke 2 that I want to, uh, to bring our attention to is the glory of God. The second thing is peace to man. Glory to God and peace to man. Those are the overarching kind of principles that I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, to pull out of this text uh, together with you this morning. So let's read that section of test, uh, text for context as we begin. We're going to read 8 through 14. We're not going to read the whole thing. But 8 through 14, it says this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the darkness of the night, an angel suddenly appears to a group of shepherds. And so, so far in Luke's gospel, we found three different instances, this is the third, of some otherworldly being suddenly materializing out of nowhere from an unseen realm, much to the terror of his human audience. First, an angel appears to Zechariah as he's serving in the temple, then to Mary, and lastly to this group of shepherds outside of Bethlehem. And in each instance, it rose reflexively inside of these human hearts, this fear, this fear of those unexpected visitations, those unexpected visitors. What would your assumptions be? What would your assumptions be if on the way home today you were riding in your car and suddenly an angel appeared sitting next to you? What if it was when you were at home? Maybe you have some work to do in the garage. Maybe you have some presents to wrap and boom, there's an angel beside you. What if it was at the dinner table tonight or right before you went to bed? What would you expect? What would your feelings be? Have you ever thought of that? Would you be joyous? Would you be fearful? Would you be confused? Personally and honestly, I would struggle. I would struggle because I know the depths of my own heart. And I would undoubtedly fear that the angels was there for more chastisement than anything. Not to bring me good news, not to bring me great joy, but instead, much like Christ did for Saul on the road to Damascus, he corrected him. That's what my fear would be, I think, if I'm being honest. I wouldn't assume that the angel was there for good reason, because I know that according to Scripture, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The repeated fear of the human audience that we see here uh, reminds us all of something. It reminds us all of the bitter news of sin and the bitter news that it bears. 
And a word from James in chapter 1 calls up to our minds that punishment could be very well what the angel was there to do. Or if an angel appeared to you today, that that's what he would be here to do. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Death. The darkness of life. Separation eternally from God. These men and women of the early New Testament period know no different than the justice of God wrapped up in the law. That's very common to them. Yet the angel says before both Zechariah and Mary, fear not. And this time to a group of shepherds, he says the same. And I think you've all heard this before, but I'm sure you have heard that shepherds are stupid. Yes, they're stupid. Don't be, it's not my words. It's not, don't, don't be frustrated with me because I said that. I'm not being crass in the Paul, but you can blame Jeremiah for that. Jeremiah in chapter 10 says that very thing, that shepherds are stupid. He literally says that. There was a general disdain for shepherds at that time. In that culture, they were considered brutish liars, not to be trusted, and they were generally considered to not seek the things of God. This was who God chose to come to. This was who God chose to deliver His message to His people through. It's these simple men that God chooses to be the first human heralds of the good news of the birth of Jesus. See, God has a history of using the lowly and broken for His purposes. David himself was a shepherd, King David. He becomes a king and he was referred to as a man after God's own heart. He led the nation of Israel faithfully for many years and he is a reminder to us that God uses broken and lowly people. And he does so for a few reasons, but this morning I want to look at one specifically. Why does God use it? He uses broken and lowly people because as Philip Yancey calls it, he can, he can use us as trophies of God's grace. What God had come to do in Christ, He came to do for all people. He didn't just do it for the, the elite. He didn't just do it for those who had earned some sort of favor in God's eyes, who worked hard through rigorous human effort to deserve a spot in heaven, but instead He chooses who He chooses for His own purpose. Those who believe striving will save them, don't recognize something important. And it's foundational as we head into uh, these two great points that we found in this song. They don't recognize that they actually need, what they actually need is more than they're able to cover in the span of our brief lives. What we need is more than we can ever cover. They need, we need God. This is why it's such great news with great joy, because the Savior is absolutely necessary to all people. He's not an alternative plan. He's not just another option. He is the good news that overcomes. The good news that overcomes the bitter news that sin bears in each and every one of us from yesterday to today and forever. What God was preparing to do through these shepherds was, uh, was in the first refrain of the song, glory to God. To bring glory to God through the message of the angel that peace had come to earth as a baby. 
these men would go on. They would share what they had heard with Mary herself. They would share what they had heard with anybody who they come across. Ultimately, not to put the, the, the power and strength and glory upon themselves, but instead to point people to Christ. We have the opportunity to declare that same good news of great joy today. Matthew instructs us in his gospel, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As I was reading through this and doing some of my study, I came across a blog post. There's a lady named Natalie (coughs) Regoli, and she offered an inference from this scripture that I think um, kind of kind of hit it on the head for me. When the multitude of the heavenly hosts sang glory to God in the highest heaven, they powerfully communicated the end for which God created the world. The Westminster Confession of Faith eloquently states the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so when we see the world in this context, everything is put into its proper place Christ was born to glorify God. Christ died to glorify God. Christ saves us to bring God glory. Yet, He does so by way, not of war, but of a baby. Wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, who's referred to here as Lord. The same Lord whose angel appears to the shepherds. It's the same Lord whose glory shone around them. He's the same Lord whom we are called to please for this promise of peace. The baby Jesus himself put this in motion. For as long as I can remember it, I don't start usually shopping for Christmas stuff too early, but I've always asked my father what he wants for Christmas, and I don't know about how many of you dads uh, get this question from your children. Nowadays, he's gotten a little bit more direct. He gives me some good ideas. I can go to the store with those, but for years, and even still today, he tags on at the end of his comment that the one consistent idea of a present that I could give him for Christmas is world peace. If world peace was something that I could muster, it would be the ultimate surprise. It would be amazing. If I could somehow quantifiably package that up and put it under the Christmas tree for my father, it would finally be like I'd finally get him. Dad loves to give really good presents to his his wife, my mother. He spent countless hours doing weird things, trying to package things up or hide things and really surprise her. But this, this would be the culmination. I could finally become on the level of gift-giving that my dad did. If I could somehow create world peace. Peace among nations, peace among families, peace among friends. Hey, peace at the checkout aisle at Black Friday. You know, Scripture does tell us something about peace. It says that we should live peaceably if possible, as far as it depends on you. So I can try. I can try to develop peace within myself that is 
that is quantifiable enough to present to my dad as a gift. I can try to develop this peace that we are offered in Luke chapter 2 in my own life. I can practice maybe some uh, a consistent prayer life or some yoga. Something to bring me some level of peace that I can also offer to you. But I don't think that that is what the peace of God is here. I don't think that's what he's offering us here. But likely for the nation of Israel, peace and a little bit of revenge is what they sought. They wanted peace. They had likely heard the prophecies of the Messiah, of the Messiah in, uh, in, in Scripture like back in Isaiah 9-7, where it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, see all the kingdom throne talk, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so I believe it's safe to assume that they consider that this governmental, human, earthly type of peace is exactly what God was going to offer them. But I think here we have to dig a little bit further into God's Word to understand exactly what it is that He's offering us here. What kind of peace He offers and who He offers it to. In John 14, 27, as Jesus is reminding His disciples that He's about to leave the earth. Hey, I'll be with you always, and hey, don't worry, I actually have to take off. But I, I have something to tell you. When you leave... When I leave, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. My peace I give you. The good news of the angel was and still is today, Jesus. The peace that's offered wasn't something governmental. It wasn't something uh, national, but instead it still and was Jesus who brings to us love that casts out fear. His words ring like an echo through time. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The same similar words of the angels. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Let not your hearts be troubled. The peace that we are promised is between God and man. And it's wrapped up in the perfect work of Christ offered freely to you as a gift this Christmas. And really, actually, any time between now and Christ's return, that His work would pay the steep price for sin that without Him we could never afford. Do you, do you trust that work? The work that the baby Jesus came to accomplish In Matthew 5, we read this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what it takes. Righteousness beyond the most righteous people of that time. 
But mercifully, Jesus both created and came to save this humanity in face of its disobedience. In humility, in patience, and in love. His name itself means God saves. Christ's obedience to death, the death upon a Roman cross, was and is the pleasing attribute required for the peace that was promised. Christ's death upon a cross was and is the righteousness required for the peace that was promised. Peace on earth to those in whom his favor rests. It comes from Jesus himself. His favor rests on us because of Jesus' righteousness, not our own. It was the same Lord whose angels appear to the shepherds, the same Lord whose glory shone around them, the same Lord whom we are called to please for the promise of peace, the same Lord who is the propitiation required for this promise of peace. Brothers and sisters, Christ did not come to eliminate sin by force of hand. He also did not merely gloss it over as acceptable out of pity because we were too far gone or because the depths of the human condition were too deep to climb out of. But instead, He came to pay He came to pay its price for those who trust Him. See, God's good news, God's good pleasure rests in those who trust that Christ's sacrifice is what pleases Him. Not that I can do anything to accomplish that, but instead that Jesus has done, has already done, and will do, standing at the right hand of the Father, intercession for me. This is the key to the peace key to peace. Paul understood that fact. He knew that as should we, the salvation is not set aside for those elite few, but instead for all. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The question is, are you living by your faith or by what Jesus has done for you? If you haven't, will you receive this peacemaker today? If you haven't pondered and considered what God has given and what God has done through His Son, Jesus, through this humble birth, through the declaration of the angels to a lowly group of shepherds, and by word of mouth, to a nation and a country in the world. Will you accept this peacemaker today if you have not? A note as we close here. You may have heard this all before. And maybe you're thinking that I'm talking to somebody else. You've been in church for all your life. However many years that is. I won't call anybody out. But this message of peace is for you. It's, just, it's not just for people who haven't heard. The, the message of peace is for those who are far off from Him, and the message of peace is to those who are near. 
uniting us in one spirit through Jesus. This message is for us all. As we reflect on a group of these lowly shepherds standing watch in the middle of a pitch dark field with maybe just a fire to cast some light in front of them, with what level of awe do you receive this message? With what level of awe do you hear these words? Would it take an entire multitude of angels to move your heart in one direction or the other? Or does the witness of Scripture fall on your ears heavy enough to help you to understand who He is and what He has done? The message that, I, that has been spoken, not what I have said, but what has been heralded by the angels, illuminated by the glory of the Lord that had shone around them. Glory to God and peace toward man. Glory to God and peace toward man by way of this rescue set in motion by a baby. As the shepherds came to Bethlehem, they found Jesus, just as the angels had said. It's a fulfillment of prophecy, a fulfillment of the signs of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And in Luke 2.18, it goes on to say, all that they had heard, all that had heard it, wondered at those things which they were told by the shepherds. Yet also, in the following verse, it says that Mary kept all of these things, and she pondered them in her heart. And so this season of childlike wonder will soon give way to the normal strappings of our day-to-day lives come December 26th. It's kind of the flow of things. We take down our Christmas trees. We put away our lights. We prepare for what's next, which for us is the bitter cold of winter. And we pray that we'll get through it quickly. But will you wonder for a time about what you've been told? Will you wonder for a time like our children do over Christmas lights as we drive along the streets? Will you wonder for a time about what has been declared this morning and in God's Word in Luke 2? Or will you, like Mary, keep these things in your heart and ponder them deeply? Ponder them in such a way that creates a change in your life. See, the interesting thing about wonder is that we can be certainly awestruck about many things that we surround ourselves with. Once when I was in Columbia, we got to go see these salt caves. And inside the salt caves, they had these, uh, we were down quite a ways. It was huge. This huge, massive room with lights everywhere. And I was awestruck. And I'll, I'll tell you, probably until just this moment, I didn't think about that again. I didn't think about it again because I had wonder about it, but I didn't ponder it. I didn't desire what it had to offer. I didn't believe it could save me. And so this message that we have in front of us this morning, do you wonder at it or do you ponder it? Do you treasure it in your heart? How will it impact you? How will it impact how you live today, and what will you do with such a gift? 
St. Augustine, drawing from Plato's allegory of the cave, once said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look on the places where the light fell. And so as you begin to ponder the depths of Christ's impact on the world around us, you too will be able to see where the light of His Son falls. And it should cause us to give glory to His name. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He, Jesus, a baby and a Lord, offers to be your peace, both in cost and in substance, that you might praise and give glory to God, that you might be the praise of His glory. Friends, Jesus did not come to make war with you. He came to wage war instead with sin and to replace what was bitter news with good news, and He did it with a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Lord God, as we have studied Your Word this morning, I pray, Lord, that it will take deep hold into the hearts of all who have heard it. That the story that we find in Luke 2 would not just be read on Christmas as a tradition, but instead as a proclamation of your glory. That we would look to you. That we would look to you as our Savior. We would look to you as our Lord. And that we would trust that very fact. That, Lord, we wouldn't trust in our own strength and our own will and our own might and our own righteousness, but instead, Lord, that we would look squarely upon the manger and know the righteousness to come. That, Lord God, the bitterness of the news of sin would be replaced in the hearts of all who hear. That it would be replaced with the good news of the goodness of your glory and the peace that you bring. Lord, we thank you for this message today. I pray, Lord God, that it would be a reminder to all that at this Christmas that we are called to ponder what you have given us. And not just forget it for next year. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. And ultimately, we thank you for your son, Jesus. In your name we pray.